inventors and their inventions. Welcome to Radio Cade, a podcast from the Cade Museum for Creativity and Invention in Gainesville, Florida. The museum is named after James Robert Cade, who invented Gatorade in 1965. My name is Richard Miles. We'll introduce you to inventors and the things that motivate them. We'll learn about their personal stories, how their inventions work, and how their ideas get from the laboratory to the marketplace. A neural-enabled prosthesis, that is, a hand that actually feels like a hand for people who have lost them. Welcome to Radio Cade. I'm your host, Richard Miles. Today, I'll be talking to Dr. Ranu Jung, professor and chair of the Biomedical Engineering Department at Florida International University, the holder of multiple patents, and a finalist for this year's Cade Prize for Innovation. Congratulations, and welcome to Radio Cade, Dr. Jung. Thank you, Richard, for giving me this opportunity to be on Radio Cade. I'm excited about talking to you. So, Rano, if it's okay if I call you Rano, you've been at Florida International University for about 10 years now, but you've also spent time at Arizona State University, University of Kentucky, and Case Western University in Cleveland. But you started life in New Delhi, India, and came to the United States in 1983. So, first thing I'd like to ask is you've had a very illustrious career in academia, but I'm very curious about what was your first impression of the United States? What did you think when you stepped off the plane? Were you excited or do you think you had made a really big mistake? That's a long time ago, but I was excited because I was going to be able to follow a dream and I had come specifically to follow biomedical engineering. So I came into New York and I actually drove with a family friend from New York to Cleveland. And so what a way to get welcome to the United States, going across the whole of the East Coast to the Midwest. It was just absolutely, absolutely fantastic, the whole, uh, the whole beginning. As, as I recollect, it's been a long time ago now. And the other thing in Cleveland was the welcoming nature of us Americans, because another graduate student who was starting in the program had already reached out to me and sent a letter to me saying, would you be interested in being my roommate? So I was really looking forward to meet Ruth Ann Brazy, who was going to be this new roommate for me. So it was a very, very exciting trip. That's a great experience. And you probably know this by now, but that is the exact route a lot of early settlers took as we sort of opened up the frontiers, going from New York through Ohio and further. And that was the frontier at the time. So what a great way to get introduced to the United States. Absolutely. Let's talk about your current work, and this is what you are in the finalists for the Cade Prize for Innovation, but it's obviously you've been doing this for a while. And if I understand it correctly, you and your team at FIU, Florida International University, have developed a prosthetic hand that can actually transmit neural signals to the brain so that a person without a hand can actually feel and control the prosthetic far better than a normal one. That sounds really complicated to me. I don't know if I described it correctly, but tell us how it works and how did you come up with the idea? Yeah, so think about when you touch something, right? You, you, what do you feel? Or you touch somebody's face. How do you feel about it? Or you grasp something. You don't really think about it much, right? You just pick up and you automatically know it's hard, it's soft, you don't crush it. And if you touch somebody, you, you have all the sensations associated with it. Now, if somebody loses their hand, for many reasons, often it's because of trauma, then what are their choices? The choices for them are to get a prosthetic hand. And currently, 
there are prosthetic hands that are available to what we call upper limb amputees who have lost their hand that the person can already control. So the way it works is that when we use our own hand, the muscles in our forearms contract and relax. And when they contract and relax, your hand opens or closes or your fingers will open and close. And so there's a whole mechanism that happens. When you have an amputation, the muscles that are above the level of the amputation, that person can still control them. So if you can record the activity of those muscles, and that is done with electrodes that are placed on the skin, one of the examples that's the most common is like an EKG system, right? So putting the sensor on there. Those signals are picked up and they can be used to drive motors in the prosthetic hand. This is commercially available. And there are different levels of prosthetic hands that are available that are simple to close, or there may be now new dexterous prosthetic hands. So there are many that are available like that. But what is missing is how do you get sensation back? So there has been some attempts of saying, let's take some information back and put a vibratory signal on the skin. So there's approaches like that that have been done. But what we went about saying is, how could we give a better sensorial experience that will interface this information when somebody is touching something or grasping something? So basically what our system is, it's not designing the prosthetic hand. It is designing this whole interface with the nervous system to restore, hopefully, this whole sensorial experience. So in this case, what we have done is we have said, all right, Let's look at the prosthetic hand. If the prosthetic hand had sensors in it, can we tap into the sensor information? We process this sensor information to make sense of what is coming out from different parts of the sensors. And then we take that information and we pass it on as commands through a wireless link to a small neurostimulator that is implanted under the skin in the upper arm of the MPT. So what do I mean by a wireless link? You know, when you listen to the radio, there is somewhere a radio station that is sending out radio's waves. So there's a transmitting an antenna. And in your radio, on your, now in your phone, there is some kind of a receiving antenna. So these radio waves are going back, taking the information and passing it from the transmitting system long distance into this antenna embedded inside some radio or a device. And it's picking it up and it's decoded and you, you hear the sound. Now step into our system. We're not sending radio waves all along very far distance, but we have a transmitting antenna that's connected to the outside of the skin. And that's what is connected to a, a little box that is inside the prosthetic where all the processing has happened. And the receiving antenna is right underneath the skin below it. There are no wires going back and forth. So it's a wireless connection. Now this receiving antenna is connected to a neurostimulator. What's a neurostimulator? It's like a pacemaker. But now your stimulator is connected to very, very fine wires like human hair. And these fine wires are threaded through the nerves in the upper arm. So again, reminding you, it's an amputee who has a forearm that is gone, the hand is gone. They can control their muscles in the left upper arm to open and close the prosthesis. As they close the prosthesis back and forth, signals are going to come back in. We're going to process them. We're going to communicate those through this wireless link to the implanted antenna. And that implanted antenna is connected to a stimulator, connected to fine wires inside nerves. So we give little charges of electrical pulses. When these pulses are delivered, the nerves get activated. And more precisely, the nerve fibers that are inside the nerves get activated. And these nerve fibers would have originally carried sensor information from your hand. 
or some of the nerve fibers are going the other way and are controlling the muscle. So when these nerve fibers get activated, then now this biological neural signal goes into the spinal cord and from the spinal cord to the brain and right there in the brain, there is where a person perceives. So the whole point here is as you do a task, as you reach out, as you touch something with your prosthetic hand, you hold it, you squeeze something, but you're not looking at it and your eyes are closed or maybe you can't even hear it, you get a sense of touch or you understand what you're grasping and how strong you're grasping. So with this ability, we can do this. It might even embody that prosthetic hand into the person's body image. And if that happens, then perhaps this will become really much more a part of the person with the sensory loop back. So they may improve their control, and that's one aspect, but the richer sensorial experience may also embody the prosthetic hand better and that might make people use their prosthetic hands more and that has many other benefits. For example, they may be compensating with their other hand to do things, but now they may use this prosthetic hand to, for example, oh, hold a plastic bottle with water in it. If you don't know how much you're squeezing, outspurt the water. So usually you would not use that prosthetic hand to do it, you would use your other hand or you would use compensatory methods. So our system is to restore the sensation through this neural interface to the person. That's a great explanation. And this happens to me every year when we run the Cade Prize. I read the application. I think I understand the technology, but it's not until talking to the inventor that I finally understand what the real breakthrough is, because it sounds like, as you said, the current state of the art is essentially one-way communication only, right? You're sending to the hand, the hand can open, close, and so on. But it's that feedback loop that is missing. And because there's no feedback loop, you have somebody who doesn't really feel like this is a part of them. And- mm -hmm not really delivering what they wanted to, and they end up not using it. Yes, yeah, so we are really closing the loop. There is some feedback, obviously, if you have motors in the system and people are very adept, we are very, very good at doing things. And they learn how much I open and close my hand. So they have learned a lot of that aspect they have learned. So it's not like there is zero feedback. And vision is a huge feedback. So if you're looking at things, there you can do a lot of stuff just by looking at it and showing, seeing how much you have by repetitive training, you can do that. But it's paying attention, not having to second guess yourself. It is having the confidence to reach out to things. All of those things are not there when the loop is not closed. So a couple of questions come to mind. Would this, in theory at least, as you develop the technology and improve it, would it enable people who have lost a hand, for instance, to engage in finer motor skills because they have the feedback, or does that not really make a difference? Well, we hope that that is going to make a difference to be able to do finer motor skills. There'll be many things to take into account. How dexterous is the prosthetic hand? That would be one of the things. So that's the technology that end. And that would be part of the scientific questions. What is the information that one can process when it's coming from this effectively to some extent an artificial sensor system, right? Do we really need a lot or do we only need a few? Think about the cochlear system for hearing, right? They're not people who have lost hearing. It's not like every single sound and every single nerve is being stimulated, but they are interpreting sound. They are interpreting music. It has become part of their life. When you read, you don't read each letter. You read words, you fill the gaps, you put the whole thing together. We don't know how many gaps you could effectively have in the sensor information. And the person, we are fantastic brains. So what we will do to put all of that together. So yes, it might help us with finer motor control. It might also help us with things like 
picking up lighter weight objects. If it's a heavy thing, something heavy you are picking up, you know, rest of your arm is going to feel heavy and you will get information back. But what if you were picking up small thing like a towel at home and you are folding it? So if you're folding that light towel and folding it, yeah, the person could contract their muscle really hard and squeeze it really hard and fold it. But if they have the touch, they would know, oh, I already touched it. I already have it. I don't have to squeeze my muscles really hard to clamp my prosthesis down. So over time, fatigue, the short term, it will make a difference. Long term use will impact the muscles. So all of these will be questions to ask. So you need the system first, you need the technology first, and then you can start to ask these questions and start to ask just pure science questions. How does our brain interpret information? What happens when you have for a long time used a compensatory strategy? Things have changed in the brain perhaps. How do you pull all of this stuff together? So it opens up a Pandora's box. You know? I imagine as soon as you solve one question, it just raises probably five more questions. Yes. In theory, could this also be applied to feet and to legs? Or is there something about this technology that lends itself only to doing hands? You are absolutely right. This can be extended to many different levels. So right now, our indication is for somebody who has lost their forearm and their hand. But you can think of it first portions of the upper arm, right? Then you can think about it as people who have lost their lower limbs. Actually, what we have, what our technology is, is really saying we can take a signal and based on the signal, we can do targeted focus stimulation inside nerves. That's what the technology is. This application is sensor information to go to nerves that are going to communicate it with the brain to give sensory information for prosthetic hand. But that's not necessarily the only application. So in the very long run, you could think about saying, oh, I'm going to stimulate another nerve that, say, controls the stomach, right? And now, based on a signal that I'm going to get that says there's a problem with the stomach or the spleen, for example, in the diabetes situation, I will use that signal to stimulate those nerves. Because we are inside the nerve, we can do very focal stimulation. And so maybe that would be the application that is going to be the killer application, so to speak, that you can do a very targeted stimulation of nerves going to organs within the body. So that would move us into the bioelectronic medicine world. Wow. So if you think in terms of the bigger expanse in which the system could work, there are many pathways could be there. But our first application, our focus right now is to restore sensation to people who have lost their hands. That's the first application. That's really exciting. That would be huge if that could be developed for other areas of the body, this is targeted neural stimulation. Tell us where you are in terms of testing. I know that in the case of the hand, the prosthetic, you want to test this sort of in as much of a real world environment as possible. Tell us how that's going. And then what sort of path to market does it look like for you? Are we talking about years away from something that could be widely available for amputees? Or is this something that we're going to see fairly soon? So this is what is called a class three, it would fall under what's called a class three medical device. It's a, because of the implanted neurostimulator that, that is there. So the first step that we had to do was to go to the FDA to get approval for what is called an investigational device exemption in order to be able to run a clinical trial. So we did that. Not many academic labs would take technology such as this all the way through the pathway to the FDA. Small companies often do it. And of course, large companies are doing a, a Medtronic of Boston Scientific is doing this all the time. But it's not usual for an academic lab to have taken from the scratch something to the FDA. So we got the investigational device exemption. 
And so now we are in the process of running a feasibility clinical trial. And what that means is that we will be doing a small sample size of people who have a transradial amputation at first and putting them through use of this system. The way we have it is it's a long-term take-home study. So you would do things for about three months in the lab. So after you get the implant, you would come into the lab. It's a personalized fit to you. So we would make sure you're fit. And of course, we want to collect additional data about how you are doing control of things, fine control, large, bigger control. Can you close your eyes and say it's soft or hard or big or small? Things like that. What do you feel like when you open, zip things up or squeeze water bottles? So we do that in the lab. And then after three months, the person will take it home. And then they will come back for the next three months a little more often. And then they'll come back for some data collection in the lab for up to two years. So we want to collect the data. But the system is then theirs to keep. You know, the implant is hopefully the way we have designed it is for life. So the internal part doesn't change. There's no battery inside. So you don't have to undergo another surgery to replace depleted batteries. All the power also goes from outside. And as we are coming up with new algorithms outside, we have smarter prosthetic hands that may come on play. Then the outside can all be upgraded. So that's also a thought-through modular design aspect of it. So we are currently in this clinical trial. One person has completed 28 months of use, more than 24 at home. And we are currently recruiting people. Once we recruit these people for one site, we also have received funding from the Army to move it to a second site, which would be the Walter Reed National Military Medical Center. We have to go back to the FDA and go back to the IRB to get approvals for increasing the number of people in the feasibility trial and for the second site. And in this case, we will also try to seek approvals for somebody who has amputations on both sides, the bilateral amputee. We believe that this sensory feedback stuff is going to be really much more important for people who have lost both hands, even more so than somebody who has lost one of their hands. So once that happens, then we can go to the next step. We have just been accepted, absolutely delighted that we have just been accepted by the NIH in a program which is called Clinic to Commercialization, C3I program. And that program, our team was just accepted into that part. And that will take us for about 24 months to put a whole business framework in place. So we are expecting that by next year, we will have strengthened. We have ideas of how we are thinking about our business framework. But we would start to strengthen that and pull, start pulling that in place. And while the feasibility trial is going on, and of course, the feasibility trial has to go well for all of that to pull together. And so probably the first place we would have people in the army, that's where we would probably look to seeing the first deployment. But the clinical trial is funded by the National Institutes of Health and then new additional monies from the U.S. Army. So it would be open to all civilians and it will be open later to also people through the Walter Reed. So in a few years, we hope that this is going to be getting ready to be real commercialization. So Renu, I have to ask you, how do you spend your average day? Because what you just listed in terms of your to-do list, I think would require about five or six people. So I'm guessing you're not the one that's doing all of this. You have people who come around, you helping you, giving you advice. What do you focus on? Are you continuing to do a lion's share of the actual research? Or are you thinking about how do we actually get this into the hands of the people that need it? This is a partnership, as you said. This is not a one-person job. This is a partnership. It's an academic industry clinical partnership. 
a lot of it has been so far in academia. I have the best team I can talk about. It is a long-term partnership. It's not two years, one year, three years. It's about 10 years or more. I have a partner, James Abbas at Arizona State, who has been from the initial concept, a research scientist who came same time I came here. He used to be here. He was my doctoral student, but decided to become an engineer. And then now he's actually going back to do his PhD. So another one, my old, old grad students have come back as research engineers. <laughs> a recently graduated grad student who worked on the project is continuing his postdoc and is actually taking this commercialization pathway forward. It's a team. So what do I do in this team? Because we have cross-training, so it's not one person for one thing, but we do the regulatory work in-house too. The implant was done right here in Miami by Dr. Aaron Berger from the Nicholas Children's Hospital. And obviously we have industry partners to make the implants if we can't make them. Think of us like the computer manufacturers who have to buy things from different places, right? We can tell them the design, but it has to be somebody who can make medical products to be able to put an implant in there. And of course, we partner with prosthetic manufacturers for making the prosthetic hand. So what do I do? I am like the um, orchestra manager <laughs> you know, for, for all of it. But I am officially the sponsor of the trial and the principal investigator of the trial. So I take the responsibility for all of that. All of the negotiations, the legal negotiations, and all of that part, I discuss those, all the FDA submissions. I will read them and I will update them and I will review them, but I'm not writing the scratch. And it's over years that has happened. I'm also not writing the program level details. The research scientists are doing, we will discuss, this is what we need to do. This is what we need to put. But they are the ones writing the framework and putting all of that code in there, so to speak. What algorithms, what should they capture? So you can think of it as I'm putting the book in place, the chapter organization in place, but the exact words of how you are going to put in that paragraph are written by the engineers and scientists and graduate students are involved and undergraduate students are involved. Renu, one of the questions we ask normally of inventors and entrepreneurs, and we're fascinated by it at the Cave Museum, is well, what was the inspiration behind their story? And you've said that you're inspired by your parents and their can-do spirit. Your father was a metallurgical engineer. Your mother was a school teacher, taught English in India. How did they influence your decision to go into engineering? Not in a direct manner to say you should go into engineering because they themselves were doing what they wanted to do. They were pursuing new things. So right from early childhood, it was you can do whatever you want to do. So it wasn't that, oh, you should do this or you should do that. So seeing them taking that risk, and as I mentioned earlier to you, this was post-India independence and a new industrialization happening, new city coming in place. So my father, who's going to be close to 90, and one of the first engineers, and they were all doing these every day, and you watch them do it. So you saw him come back and say, we broke this record of the blast furnaces. We melted this much iron ore today. So you saw that kind of atmosphere, you know, just allowed you to think and say, oh, yeah, what could I do? What would I want to do? And so that was the inspiration. And it was just an interesting time to be in India at that time. Indira Gandhi was the prime minister. I still remember going to a rally and listening to this woman giving a speech. And I think just that whole ecosystem was encouraging the children to dream. And no boundaries that you need to stay here. You need to stay with the family. 
so they left their parents and their families to go to this new city and build that up. And for their children, they said, you have the world. You can go wherever you want to go. It's a very special time in history and a special city to be raised in with a group of young entrepreneurial parents, like a cohort. And that's what it was, you know. What I find fascinating too, Renu, is that you actually considered going into medicine instead of engineering, and then you chose engineering. But now, through sort of the peak of your career, you're in bioengineering, right? And ultimately, you got to have both things you wanted. And I have to say, undergraduate students going into research labs, they really should explore. And that's how I found out about that there is a potential possibility. There was a professor who had a lab called Problem Oriented Research Lab, and he had actually just spent maybe a semester in the US, I don't know exactly how long, and come back. And he started this lab where they were doing medical instrumentation for an electronic blood pressure cuff. And I thought, oh, I could have a combination of all this electronic stuff. My major was electronics and communications engineering, so I could have been doing radar. And instead I said, oh, this is a place I could combine it. But there was nothing in biomedical engineering in India. I even interviewed to sell x-ray machines for a company so that I could get into the medical field. But then getting this opportunity to do grad school at Case Western, a really, really a fantastic graduate program, that was the opportunity that helped me solidify my passion and that I found a place that could be together. I asked you earlier about what would your advice be to other researchers and entrepreneurs? And you wrote that one piece of advice would be don't cross out ideas too fast because mm -hmm. ideas are too early. So why don't we explore that a little bit? How do you keep a good idea alive, let's say as a researcher, for which there may not be funding right away or there may not be a commercial application right away, but you know it's a good idea. How do you keep those going? So let me tell you this idea of interfacing with the nervous system and think of it as a... What we call a biohybrid system, a bionic system, and this together. This idea of pulling this together and interfacing was way back when I was just graduated from my postdoc and I worked with a professor named Davis Cohen and we were studying lampreys, eels. They're like eels. And we looked at the spinal cord and how the spinal cord works and what helps to do the movement. And it was like, what if we could do a combination of an electronic circuit? that mimics part of the spinal cord and interface it with the spinal. I could do the simulations. I could do the experimental prep. I could not make the actual chip hardware because that was not my background. I went to a summer course. I learned about it and I came back and said, I got to find an electrical engineering friend who is faculty member who will be willing to put this into hardware. Found one, talked with her for a few years. She went and did the course, came back, and we actually then put it into a physical thing and we interfaced it with the spam. We got a grant from NIH, which was called the R21, a futuristic grant, to say we can take an electronic chip, and you are hearing the word neuromorphic now. This is now in, we are talking about in early 1990s. Take out the spinal cord from the lamprey, you can put it into a fluid bath, and you can maintain it, and the spinal cord will be activated. We then connected it to this chip and we could close the loop and we could show that the electronic chip and the spinal cord activity can go next to each other. I had a very tough time publishing that. Who would ever interface these things with the living system? What a crazy idea. Okay, so we got it into an IEEE journal. I was thinking this should go into science. It never did, but we did get it there. 10, 15 years later, somebody in the army saw this paper. This was in the Iraq war. So I formed a small company 
because you needed a company for this. And we got funding where we basically said, if your foot is injured, you will be stabilized in a false boot. Underneath it, we will put a small false foot. This false foot will be controlled with a circuit. Hey, what was that circuit? Like the spinal cord circuit that we had done way back there. And this spinal cord circuit will be driven by sensors that pick up when the person starts to move. So if your upper leg is okay, as you start to move the rhythmic movement, that will drive that spinal cord circuit, that electronic circuit, that moves the foot that is the boot. And so the person can stick their foot into this stabilized part, the false foot will move, and you can wear this boot and you could walk out of there. And we actually demonstrated that on a person in the lab. So fast forward even further a few years, and actually this happened around the same time as I got funding for this neural interface thing to me. So I'm thinking all of this and saying, how are we combining electronic interfaces? So it has changed shape, but the idea has moved that you can link artificial systems with living systems and close the loop so that you've got this merger, this biohybrid system where one is impacting the other. Where will we go? Will we have adaptive engineered systems? Because our engineered systems are still not adapted enough. Where will it go? I think they will. Now you'd hear about neuromorphic words. Major companies are doing it. Everybody's doing it. So who knows where this is going to go? Where will this organic, inorganic link happen? I'm talking about early 1990s. And we were the first people to show that you can interface an electronic circuit in a living spinal cord. It is in a bath. It's not in a person walking or an animal walking per se, but it was a living system. And today we are looking at saying, how can we interface? What are we doing with interfacing an electronic system with a real person and putting them into this loop and hoping that this is going to actually improve their whole self, their ability to do different tasks, but most importantly, to have a sensorial experience. I'm pretty sure I never heard the term neuromorphics until probably 2012, 2013, right around there. And I'd never heard of the term before. I thought it was brand new. I had no idea it had been around since the early 90s. Yes, our paper is published with saying neuromorphic something. The Army grant is neuromorphic something. So it was way in the infancy of when that stuff was being talked about. Carver Mead from Caltech had been talking about it. I was very, very fortunate to have Avis Cohen and work with her. I met her at a summer course at Woods Hole, Massachusetts on computational neuroscience. You never know where it will get you. So my PhD advisor, Peter Katona, who I call him my academic father, who always gave me the strength of saying, explore, explore. There was no idea too crazy to be taken up. There was not this, oh, we don't do this, so you can't do this. Ranu, clearly our judges have done a great job in advancing you to our finals this year. I'm very excited to learn about what you're doing. I hope it succeeds. I hope we can have you back at some point on the show to talk about updates. Again, want to congratulate you on making the finals, but also just more broadly on the work that you have done currently at Florida International University. Really enjoyed talking to you. So thank you for coming on the show today. Thank you, Richard. Look forward to returning. Radio Cade is produced by the Cade Museum for Creativity and Invention, located in Gainesville, Florida. Richard Miles is the podcast host, and Ellie Tom coordinates inventor interviews. Podcasts are recorded at Hardwood Soundstage and edited and mixed by Bob McPeak. The Radio Cade theme song was produced and performed by Tracy Collins and features violinist Jacob Lawson. 